Isaiah chapter 66. Thus says the Lord, Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me and what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made. And so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look, who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. He who slaughters an ox is like one who kills a man. He who sacrifices a lamb like one who breaks a dog's neck. He who presents a grain offering like one who offers pig's blood. He who makes a memorial offering of frankincense like one who blesses an idol. These have chosen their own ways and their soul delights in their abominations. I also will choose harsh treatment for them and bring their fears upon them because when I called, no one answered. When I spoke, they did not listen. But they did what was evil in my eyes and chose that in which I did not delight. Hear the word of the Lord, you who tremble at his word. Your brothers who hate you and cast you out for my name's sake have said, let the Lord be glorified that we may see your joy. But it is they who shall be put to shame. The sound of an uproar from the city, a sound from the temple, the sound of the Lord rendering recompense to his enemies. Before she was in labor, she gave birth. Before her pain came upon her, she delivered a son. Who has heard such a thing? Who has seen such things? Shall a land be born in one day? Shall a nation be brought forth in one moment? For as soon as Zion was in labor, she brought forth her children. Shall I bring to the point of birth and not cause to bring forth, says the Lord? Shall I, who cause to bring forth, shut the womb, says your God? Rejoice with Jerusalem and be glad for her, all you who love her. Rejoice with her in joy, all you who mourn over her, that you may nurse and be satisfied from her consoling breast, that you may drink deeply with delight from her glorious abundance. For thus says the Lord, behold, I will extend peace to her like a river and the glory of the nations like an overflowing stream. And you shall nurse, you shall be carried upon her hip and bounced upon her knees. As one whom his mother comforts, so I will comfort you. You shall be comforted in Jerusalem. You shall see and your heart shall rejoice. Your bones shall flourish like the grass. And the hand of the Lord shall be known to his servants. And he shall show his indignation against his enemies. For behold, the Lord will come in fire. And his chariots like the whirlwind to render his anger and fury. And his rebuke with flames of fire. For by fire will the Lord enter into judgment, and by his sword with all flesh, and those slain by the Lord shall be many. Those who sanctify and purify themselves go into the gardens, following one in the midst, eating pig's flesh, and the abomination and mice shall come to an end together, declares the Lord. For I know their works and their thoughts, and the time is coming to gather all nations and tongues, and they shall come and shall see my glory, and I will set a sign among them. And from then I will send survivors to the nations, to Tarshish, Pul, and Lud, who draw the bow, to Tubal and Javan, to the coastlands far away that have not heard my fame or seen my glory. And they shall declare my glory among the nations. And they shall bring all your brothers from all the nations as an offering to the Lord, on horses and in chariots and in litters and on mules and on dromedaries to my holy mountain Jerusalem, says the Lord, just as the Israelites bring their grain offering in a clean vessel to the house of the Lord. And some of them also I will take for priests and for Levites, says the Lord. For as the new heavens and the new earth that I make shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your offspring and your name remain. From new moon to new moon and from Sabbath to Sabbath, all flesh shall come to worship before me, declares the Lord. 
and they shall go out and look on the dead bodies of the men who have rebelled against me. For their worm shall not die, and their fire shall not be quenched, and they shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. Teach me your way, O Lord, and I will walk in your truth. Give me an undivided heart that I may fear your name. Amen. The 19th century Southern theologian R.L. Dabney is regarded as famous or infamous for many things. But few of his teachings are more well-known than his sermon called True Courage. One part of that sermon has particularly stuck with me over the years. He said, true courage implies the existence of fear. That is the feeling of danger. For courage is but the overcoming of that feeling by a worthier motive. Dabney's point was that if there isn't a cause for fear present, and that fear felt, there is no need for courage. All throughout this book, I think Isaiah has been saying something similar about comfort. If there is no cause for discomfort, no felt experience of discomfort, people have no need to be comforted. Likewise, there's no need for hope unless the future otherwise looks bleak. Throughout this invitation to hope, Isaiah has plenty to say about that bleak future. Judah will suffer under God's judgment for present unbelief first through the attacking armies, and then finally through being uh, uh, conquered and going into exile, and then even, even after coming back and returning to their unbelief, they'll ultimately be destroyed by God's judgment in AD 70. And Isaiah says that is merely a picture of eternity without repentance in hell, life under God's permanent judgment. And so this last line of the book of Isaiah, this one final warning of hell, is consistent with what has come before. But it does feel strange, doesn't it? Maybe even a little bit embarrassing that such an important book for the comfort of God's people ends with a verse like verse 24 where the dead bodies of the rebels against God's grace stand as a symbol of the eternal punishment that awaits the unrepentant. But Jesus wasn't embarrassed by this text. In fact, he used it. It was all too important and all too real to not be an important part of his teaching ministry. Jesus refers to hell in Mark 9 using this same language and offering these contrasting eternal paths as starkly as Isaiah ever did. That's really what Isaiah has been doing throughout this book. 
One scholar summarizes the whole of Isaiah in just a few sentences. Isaiah has presented us with alternatives. Trust the Lord and live, or rebel against the Lord and die. He's explained the grace and mercy of God and offered his forgiveness. He's also explained the holiness and wrath of God and warned of his judgment. He has promised glory for those who will believe and judgment for those who scoff. Through Isaiah, God has offered great comfort. But he cannot comfort unrepentant rebels who feel no discomfort with their current relation to God. Such people have no need of the hope he offers because they do not fear an unpleasant future apart from it. In that context, when Isaiah summarizes his teaching in this last sermon, this last revelation of chapter 66, he simplifies life and its outcomes to one thing. A thing that many of the people in Judah are missing out on and they don't even see it. It's true worship. One author says it's that simple. The problem with the whole world is false worship and the way to enter God's promised future is through true worship. Worship has consequences now and forever. Verse 1, Thus says the Lord, Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? And what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made. And so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Isaiah 66 is the vision of what becomes of each kind of worshiper, the true and the false. Everyone is a worshiper, whether they acknowledge it or not. Humans were made to worship, and we cannot help but do so. There are no non-worshippers. The question, the distinction that matters most is simply, who or what are we worshiping? At the end of this passage and at the end of this stage of human history, God says he will destroy all false worship and false worshipers in his divine wrath. And we expect that to be for those who practice false religions or who practice no religion at all, and rightly so. But because scripture is written for the benefit of God's people, plural, us and them the focus here isn't on those non-worshippers. It's on the false one, even the false ones among God's own people. In Israel, Isaiah saw sincere worshipers being rejected by their own brothers, their own flesh and blood. Oh yes, their brothers were willing to practice religion, but genuine exercises of faith 
walking in obedience, humility before the Lord, keeping his commandments, these were offensive to their sensibilities. They preferred a superficial form of worship that was about making themselves appear holy or about checking the boxes of holiness rather than humbly receiving the holiness that comes from God. Fast forward a couple thousand years and Jesus finds the same kind of false worshipers in his own day. You remember when he called some of the Pharisees whitewashed tombs? They looked good on the outside, but inside were full of the filth that leads to death. When Paul wrote to Timothy about the challenges of the last days, that's Timothy's time and our time today. Paul listed out many of the familiar sins and examples of wickedness that we would know. And then he concluded that list with this. Having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. False worship and the lives that we build out of that false worship are as sinful offenses to God as being a lover of self or money, as being arrogant and proud, as being abusive and heartless, as being unappeasable and ungrateful. Outward ceremonies accompanied by inward rebellion cannot please God. Neither can worship that is about getting what we want out of it rather than about becoming what God wants by it. That's why with all the moral imperatives in Scripture and with all of the condemnation for specific evil acts, Isaiah here can simplify it all down to true worship and false worship. False worship corrupts everything else. It lies about reality because it lies about God. Isaiah begins this chapter with truths about God's nature precisely because our recognition of those truths and our submission to those truths is what makes the difference between true and false worship, between eternal worship and eternal death. It is ridiculous to Isaiah that we would think merely external worship would connect us to God. You want to build God a temple or a church? You want to offer animal sacrifices or grain? Or you want to put cash or checks in an offering basket? God created all those things. Giving God only back to him what he made isn't what he made us for. When God is offered worship, even through the right means, it must be accompanied with, verse 2, humble and contrite spirits. That's when worship connects us to eternal truths, doing something real for God and for us. It's humbling ourselves before God, sitting in a pew or standing with a hymnal, admitting his godness. 
admitting our need for him, telling the truth about him in our singing, confessing the truth about ourselves in our confession. These acts of worship aren't merely symbolic. They are life-altering or they are nothing. This is the only way we have to enjoy and glorify the only God who can save us. This is what we have. And we wander about our lives as Israel did here in Judah, wondering why God feels far from us, wondering why we can't catch a break, wondering why we feel so empty and so worn down. And then we come in here. And we go through motions while our hearts are far from God. True worship acknowledges the discomfort that our sin has wrought in this world for ourselves and others. True worship doesn't play pretend. But it does rest in the comfort of God's goodness to overcome that discomfort. True worship solemnly grasps the reality of hell and the hopelessness of our position apart from God's intervention. It doesn't treat life like it's a game without consequences. And true worship rejoices in the certainty of salvation that has kept us from it. True worship now is a foretaste of worship in eternity. And that's why to care nothing about the worship of God now is great folly. To care nothing of how God is to be worshipped, after all, he's the one being worshipped, is folly. But every bit as dangerous and insidiously easy to slip into is false worship. It's to worship for the wrong reasons and so to not really worship at all. A perfect how we worship, that's not at the heart of true worship. How we worship matters, but that's not the core of the thing. The core of the thing is the why. Why do we worship? Is it like the Pharisees to put on a show for others? Is it like some in Judah to try and put God in our debt that he'll owe us something? Oh, those will never do. The answer Isaiah gives and the motivation behind all true worship is that we tremble before the word of God. Verse 2, but this is the one on whom I will look who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Verse 5, hear the word of the Lord, you who tremble at his word. Now, one of the reformers observed there are two kinds of trembling. One is from people who are terrified when they hate God and are fleeing from him. But the other sort of mind trembles at his commandments 
That describes an inward purity of heart and a sincere desire for godliness. We, we behold the word of God and tremble simply because it is God's word. It's glorious. We tremble as a sign that our minds are prepared to please God. Paul wrote to the Thessalonians, and we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. Plenty of people will say they love and fear God. But God says the proof of that love and fear is in our worship, in our obedience to his word. His description of the unbelief in Judah is a clear contrast to what Paul just saw in the Thessalonians. That's what Paul said about what he saw, and he gave thanks for it. But what did Isaiah see? Verse 4, when I called, no one answered. When I spoke, they did not listen, but they did what was evil in my eyes and chose that in which I did not delight. He calls their worship abominations. It's revolting to God. It's disgusting what they're doing. But Isaiah gives us a godly alternative. I've heard this in, put in a threefold way. You could consider it this way. That true worship, we should have a longing to hear, a desire to believe, and an intention to obey. That's at the heart of true worship, a longing to hear, Lord, speak to us. A desire to believe. I believe, help my unbelief. And an intention to obey, just a closer walk with thee. Isaiah's not saying this is easy. Circumstances and content complicate matters for us. Circumstances shake our trust in the goodness of God. They convince us to judge God's word by his works and not the other way around. We should always judge God's works by his word. Circumstances can make it harder to listen, harder to hear. The fact that God uses human preachers so prominently in the proclamation of his word is yet another difficult circumstance. Every preacher I read this week gives the listener some reason not to listen. We preachers don't mean to, but we do. And so we both have responsibilities. My responsibility is to minimize the complications. To live my life in such a way that it makes it easier and not harder for you to hear. To prepare my sermons in such a way that it makes it easier and not harder for you to hear. My responsibility is to minimize the complications. Your responsibility is to overlook the complications that remain and listen to the word of God. Preaching should be received that way. Paul said it is the word of God and not the word of man. And that is a conscious choice. That is a feat of faith. And that is itself an act of true worship. You're not just observing my sermon. 
If you're listening and receiving it by faith, you are actively worshiping God in the hearing. The content of sermons also makes it hard to hear. God's word is working toward our putting off the old self and putting on the new. But there are parts of that old self we'd like to keep wearing. Parts that have become like that comfortable old t-shirt we should throw away and just won't. And the content of God's word, it goes against everything the world is telling us matters, everything the world prioritizes and loves. Are we supposed to be eager to sign up for irrelevant outcast status? And all of this is why, except for a small remnant, Israel wouldn't hear the prophets either. And so failing to tremble at God's word, they ignored true worship or performed heartless motions of worship that made the problem even worse. And Isaiah tells them what they need to know, that the consequences of this refusal of God's grace will be eternally severe. But he tells us something else. For the remnant, for the faithful who will tremble before God's word, great blessing comes through true worship. By worship, they will have the strength and perseverance for the challenges and trials of this life. God will give them his own strength. Verse 12, for thus says the Lord, behold, I will extend peace to her like a river and the glory of the nations like an overflowing stream. Verse 14, you shall see and your heart shall rejoice. Your bones shall flourish like the grass and the hand of the Lord shall be known to his servants. And then God uses this great metaphor of a mother carrying and then caring for her child. We know that an infant cannot take care of itself. It needs a mother to nurse and to provide for and to protect it. And in one use of this metaphor, we are those infants. It's by God's strength alone that we are given life and truly strengthened. It's that those who are outside the covenant are brought in. Verse 20, strangers will be called brothers. We, you and I, can become children of God by the faith God gives. But there's another way this metaphor is used here, that the people of God, that we as the church, are in the role of mother as well. God gathered us, miraculously multiplying us. Before she was in labor, she gave birth. Before her pain came upon her, she delivered a son. Guys, there's no reason the earthly church should ever flourish. Left to our own strength, we'd be childless and barren, and yet the church is and will be triumphant in the world as the gospel goes forth. The Lord builds up Jerusalem. He gathers the outcasts of Israel. He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. Quoting another, in the ways of God, his church provides the whole world with the only true comfort that exists, and that is the very comfort of God himself. You see, a worshiping church isn't just important for the church. It's important for the world. 
through the church, through our worship, the gospel is proclaimed to a dying world. Through the church, through our worship, God's invitation to hope and the proof of its power is on display for all who will receive it. Through the church and through our worship, his offer of a new heavens and a new earth for eternity is is previewed as eternity breaks through ever slightly into the present when we are worshiping and living together as the church. Dabney said that where there is no possibility of fear, there can be no courage. Likewise, Isaiah teaches us that where there is no trembling, there can be no comfort. But tremble not at this world, nor even the eternal death our sins deserve. Tremble at the word of God in reverence and humility. And be comforted. And then by our worship, declare that comfort to the nations. For as the new heavens and the new earth that I make shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your offspring and your name remain until he comes. Amen. Let's pray.